Hello and welcome to FireDev, a fireside chat with developers and people just in general in the industry. Today we have Nathaniel Barker that has you know a ton of experience with us. So I just want to thank you know Nate for joining us. So you know, thank you, Nate. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. No problem. So okay, so I'm gonna go right back to the start of your career. You worked at Disney. What did you do there and how was the interview process for Disney? Sure. Um, so I started my career at Disney Mobile. Um, Disney at that time had just acquired a company called Tapulous, which was one of the first mobile game developers for smartphones. Um, Disney had a fairly long history of um, buying or building their own um, games, either for the web, um, they built a bunch for feature phones, um, and Tapulous kind of came in uh, right as the iPhone was launching and um, essentially their strategy was, was pretty clever. They bought 30 different apps, um, had no idea they wanted to make games, and uh, then launched them all and saw which one did the best, um, which is actually kind of now a strategy that you see with a lot of hyper-casual developers who just make a bunch of things and see whatever sticks. And so that was essentially their strategy. And in their case, a game that was really similar to um, Guitar Hero or Dance Dance Revolution took off, and that was called Tap Tap Revenge. Um, it was enormously successful. Um, they quickly grew to accommodate all of the um, players. Uh, they needed a bunch of engineers, a lot of artists, um, a bit on game design, sound design, and some uh, business people to handle all of the relationships with the artists. Um, and then I came along to help with the community management. So my interview process was a bit funny because they wanted me to um, apply for uh, essentially two jobs at uh, one time. So I interviewed with the marketing folks for community management, and I interviewed with um, the business folks for a more business development kind of project planning role. Um, and my skill set didn't really match the business side, but uh, I was like a fresh grad right out of uh, university. But the um, job that worked pretty well with my skill set was community management. And they asked me relatively simple questions about how I would um, how I would care for customers, how I would handle complaints, how I would um, it, compare their game with other competitors on the industry, what I thought were good examples of um, good community management. And then they had me do a sample of um, what I would do for a particular artist, uh, how I would arrange their community management. Um, and so what I remember from that is that, A, it was really helpful that I had a background in retail sales. So I used to work at the Apple store um, and I sold um, iPhones when they first came out. And so Apple was really, really good at training people something called the Ritz-Carlton method, which is a way to um, handle what you might call like really high value customers. And Apple looked at how Ritz-Carlton worked with their really high value customers and said, okay, we'll do this with every customer that comes into the Apple store. And they trained us on this. Uh, and it, one of the core essentials is basically sticking with the customer at every step of the way saying, oh, you know, you, um, for instance, a customer comes in and, um, or a guest at a hotel would come in and say, I want to go to a fancy restaurant tonight and I need some place to store my bags while I do that. Okay, so 
you walk with them over to the concierge and you talk to the concierge and you say, hi, this is Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones wants to go to a fancy restaurant and you stick with them. And then the concierge gets them a booking. Then you walk over with a customer to the, um, the backdrop and you give them a, a bag ticket or you help them out there. And then, you know, it finally ends after all of that is done with the customer or with the guest. And then you've completed your task, you can move on to the next guest. And that's a really essential concept when it comes to customer care, because it makes sure that A, information isn't lost, and B, the customer generally feels better. So I basically told them essentially that. Um, and um, and then I told them a uh, concept I had for a, uh, there's a band called Guar um, that uh, is sort of like a, a metal band that's it's kind of like, I don't want to say like a joke band, but they're definitely more theatrical. They dress up in really big costumes and they do all sorts of like blood and guts related things. Um, uh, it's great for Halloween and they wanted content for that. So I essentially pitched a bunch of um, ideas around like, here's how you can, you know, get all sorts of like blood and guts and satanic imagery and blah, blah, blah into this uh, a social media contest. Um, and it sounded like actually they were doing a lot. Of, they were going to end up doing a lot of the things that I had pitched coincidentally. So it was a good interview. And then I got hired. Okay. Well, that's, that's pretty interesting. So why did you leave such a big company like Disney? Because for many, that is like, you know, it's the pinnacle of where they want to be. You know, they look up to, you know, Disney, Google, Facebook, and they say, you know, I wish I could work there one day. But for you, it was merely the start of your career. Yeah. Um, Disney was a great place to start my career and I learned some of the most valuable lessons uh, in in my career starting there. It was an incredibly fast-paced place to be because they were in the middle of a transition from being a startup, which was Tapulous, to being acquired by Disney. So there was there was a lot that was going on. So it was a kind of a cool hybrid between a um, startup where you can kind of do whatever you want and the sky is the limit and also here's a corporate environment where there's a set of, um, you know, there's like a clear corporate hierarchy that goes all the way up to the, the sea level. And, you know, Bob, Bob Iger, uh, the CEO of Disney, here's the, you know, what the board thinks, all these things. And you have this like enormous corporate structure, like lawyers and all sorts of stuff around you. So that was really cool to see. And ultimately what I decided I wanted was an opportunity to be, I like this, this the startup side of that. So ultimately, I decided I wanted to be more on the startup side and less on the big corporate side. So I got an offer from somebody else who I had worked with at Disney who was starting a new company, and she needed a person to handle business development for her. Um, so I said, okay, that looks really cool. I'm going to miss Disney, but this seems like a step forward in my career. And maybe one day way in the future, like you say, you know, I can settle back at a, a big corporate like Disney, um, which has all sorts of awesome advantages. But um, uh, yeah, I, I decided to, to move on over to that company. And that was called Chartboost. And that was like the, the next step in my career. Okay. And so whilst you, you know, you worked at Chartboost, that's actually where we met. And what did you do at Chartboost? And for those that don't know, what is Chartboost? I think for a lot of mobile, especially game developers, they know, but uh, uh, you know, other developers and other people listening, they may not know what it is. Sure. Chartboost is a mobile ad network. 
Um, it originally pitched itself as a little bit more of a platform, but I think it settled safely into the mobile ad network category. So if you're not really familiar with the way that ad networks work, essentially what Sharpoost did would, was to connect um, advertisers, so folks who want to show an ad with publishers, who are people who want to make money by showing ads, like maybe they have a game and they want to make some money off that. And then Chartboost is all of the tech that makes that happen. They give the software or the SDK um, to both sides of the advertiser and the publisher uh, and ensure that there's a functioning ad algorithm um, that works between that so that you're always showing ads to the right people at the right time in the right place. Um, Chartboost was recently acquired by Zynga, which is really great. Um, and is now becoming part of Zynga's larger platform strategy for how they can kind of create a content fortress around all of their their games and tech. Um, and when I was at Chartboost, I... Oop, there's like a bit of static there. Uh, I don't know if you can hear it. Uh, I mean, I can't hear it. Uh, it should be fine because I'll be all, you know, edited post if there's any issues. Okay, cool. Um, so I'll just start with uh, one, two... While I was at Chartboost, I worked on the business development side. My focus was on indie developers. So I wanted to ensure that people who are on the medium to long tail of Chartboost customer base were happy uh, with the platform, had everything they needed. I could answer any of their questions, um, which meant that I wasn't necessarily working most of the time with big companies like a Zynga or like a um, or like Disney, but instead it was on a lot of folks who were very new to the app and game industry um, and were kind of figuring things out in mobile just at the same time that we were. Um, I did a bit of sales. I also did a bit of marketing where I went around to a few different um, cities in Europe and we put on educational events to help people who were just coming into the industry, understand the ins and outs of mobile advertising. Okay, so afterwards you worked at Line Kong Interactive Group. What did you do there and like why did you use chart, leave Chartboost? Because I think you were there for about three years, if I'm correct? Uh, I was at Chartboost for four years and oh. I... Um, I had been living in, honestly, uh, I actually blame some of the, the events that we did when we were on the marketing side. Um, we, part of the event series that we did, we went to London and Berlin, Barcelona and Stockholm. And going on that marketing, like that, that, that marketing um, series, um, that roadshow that we put on essentially opened my eyes to how much more of the world I had not yet seen. Um, earlier in the summer, before I went on all of those, I, I went on a vacation that kind of hit many of the same cities. And I, and I kind of quickly discovered like, wow, like I've been living in the U.S. my entire life. I uh, grew up in San Francisco. So when I um, started working, I was working in the Bay Area. And I was working in like a very... Uh, working and living in like a really small bubble. It's like a little tech bubble in the Bay Area. And it feels like it's the center of the universe because there are so many big companies that you hear about um, that were making a lot of waves at the time. Obviously, Apple, um, but also Facebook and Twitter and, 
and PayPal and all these companies were there. Um, and uh, Microsoft had an office and are several and, and all of these video game companies were popping up suddenly and it felt like it was taking over the world. And it feels like, oh, wow, like I'm where it's where it's at, where it's supposed to be. This is so cool. But then you realize once you get out into the rest of the world that actually there's a lot more going on. There's a lot more stories and, and human experiences to have. And I decided at that point that I needed to get out of the Bay Area um, and go explore a bit. So I kind of lined up for myself three different opportunities. One was in um, New Zealand and it was a job that was super cool, but I didn't really want to live in New Zealand for more than like a month because it just seemed like I'd get a bit tired of it. Um, one was in Berlin, uh, which is where I am now, but for a different company. And um, I really liked Berlin, but um, I didn't really like the uh, job opportunity that I had. And the final one was in Taiwan um, doing marketing. And I was like, okay, well, marketing is pretty cool. I have experience there. It's for a mobile game company, which is what I like. Um, and I know absolutely nothing about Taiwan, but it seems like it would be a pretty different place to live. So if I want to get uh, something novel and new and exciting, that's going to be the route there. So it was entirely a, a lifestyle decision. Um, I really enjoyed the the work that I did at Charpoost. And I, I still am super close with a lot of people who, who currently work there, but I just needed to get out and see the world. Um, so I ended up going over to Taipei um, uh, and working at Line Kong, where I led a marketing team. And we worked on um, launches for mobile games that um, that this Line Kong, uh, sorry, we worked on launches for mobile games that this Line Kong subsidiary was doing that were um, uh, things, anything ranging from a fashion game to a Rocket League sort of game to a partnership that we did with uh, Fox for an Independence Day mobile game that was super cool. Um, so we worked on a bunch of projects there. Unfortunately, the studio um, ran out of money um, and wasn't able to raise again. And so I um, left from that after only a year, which was really disappointing because I was enjoying being out in Taiwan um and bounced back to the u.s for just like a really short time to help out a, a friend's company and then um and then went to berlin um uh to work essentially at ubisoft for five years okay and you said line kong wasn't able to raise any more funding to keep up was it line kong itself or was it that subsidiary that you was talking about yeah, that's a good distinction. So Linecon itself is quite large, um, and it's a profitable company based in um, in mainland China. Um, I think they have offices in Shanghai and maybe Beijing. Um, they owned and operated this subsidiary that was first headquartered in Berlin Game, which is in California. Um, and then that subsidiary opened up its own secondary subsidiary in um in taipei um the reason being that the um um some of like the executive staff of the of the subsidiary either were taiwanese or were chinese and recognized that there was a lot of developer talent in taiwan and it would make sense to hire out there um it was a little bit more cost competitive than hiring engineers in um uh, in the U.S., um, and then they could make games a little bit cheaper. Um, so, so they set up the subsidiary, and then essentially ran through a bunch of different uh, 
projects, um, applying a lot of the, the best practices for different types of games to all of them. We're trying all sorts of varieties of things from, as I mentioned before, fashion and, and action sports and stuff like this. But um, none of those games really took off. Um, and the, um, I guess the management um, at Lion Kong, at the parent company, kind of looked at it and said, all right, well, if, if none of these are really going to make that much money, um, then we should probably um, terminate support of this subsidiary because it's just going to be a cost sink, uh, which is what they ended up doing um, after about a year and a half, two years, I think. Um, I only spent a year there, but um, yeah, I think they, they kind of saw the, the, the writing on the wall, but it just it just wasn't going to work out with this group. Okay, yeah, so, so it sounds like that a successful company. It was doing well. They tried to go into something that was new, hot, and different. Didn't quite work out for whatever reason, and they just went back to their core business because, I mean, maybe they could have made it a success if they had, you know, stuck to it for another year or two, but it probably they thought it's too too risky to stick with it when we got a profitable business and there's no point, you know, risking it all on this new studio. Yeah, I think that's precisely it. I mean, it's, it's such a gamble, and I think... Um... It's the case where you need a, a fairly large commitment to user acquisition, um, and you, you've always needed it. And I think that's something that maybe they were less um, comfortable committing to. Um, you need to spend a lot of money, and you need a lot of people to manage it. And that's something that we were we were good at. I mean, we were managing, but I think just like the total cost, you know, is for a launch is going to be in like the millions, and you can't really be it. it is, you can't really be super scrappy about it. Like you actually mm. have to. To commit there and i just don't think that they they ultimately wanted to do that okay and how was it how was working in america at char boost and disney compared to working in taiwan at lion kong like what was the contrast between the two sort of cultures and the way they did business and just in general oh they're super different um so um Charpoost was very, very like scrappy, small, direct, um, and and kind of like maybe more flat hierarchy. Um, Disney was friendly and American, but because it was like this massive organization, it's extremely political. So that means that you're like taking sides and you're you're working on like these like weird executive political things about like who has power and what are they doing and whose project is getting funded and all this sort of silly stuff um in taiwan i was managing the team and i don't speak great chinese right so i was doing everything in english um and so i was in a way it was like sort of like removed from some of the things that were going on um, so if, you know, which would occasionally happen, like two coworkers would, would be upset with each other, but like, I wouldn't see it. Like, I wouldn't see it because I wouldn't see the way that they're speaking to each other. And I wouldn't like, so I might just like see, you know, some, uh, maybe people acting a bit strange or avoiding each other, but I couldn't really tell Nate? if there was like a problem. Yeah. Nice. Can we just take a quick pause? Your recording seems to be offline uh, that's strange so what i'm what i'm just gonna do everyone's gonna hit stop i'm gonna mm -hmm. check the recording and then we'll start a new recording obviously it'll be all stitched together in one but i'm just gonna hit stop so i can just see what's happened because 
yours is coming up as offline. You may have recorded it, but just give me a second. Okay. Okay, all good, everyone. None of the recording was missed, which is fantastic. It was just a little error on the podcast recording side, said offline, but it's all good. So, Nate, we were just talking about your experience in Taiwan and America, the contrast between it. So, do you want to continue with that? Sure. Um, so, um, other than interpersonal things, I think there's kind of a fundamental dif- difference in how um, companies will operate um, in in both regions. So, um, American companies are friendly in a certain way, but more adversarial. So you could expect like a certain degree of pushback um, if you're having an argument with someone uh, and it may be like in, in work and uh, or maybe it's like a, a sales pitch or something like this. Like there's a certain amount of you kind of just tell people what you think. I like this. I don't like this. And there's a certain American way where um, I've noticed like Americans will try to sugarcoat a lot of things. So they will tell you specifically, I don't like this thing. Um, but maybe in like a friendly way, for instance, yeah, this is okay. Um, I'm not so sure if this is the right time for us, but you know, maybe we can look at this another time or I think this needs a little bit more work and then we can consider this project or something like that. But um, it is a little bit more direct in certain ways. Um, or, you know, you did a really good job, but I just don't think this is for us. Yeah, kind of that sort of stuff. Um, whereas in Taiwan, um, the objective was to be much more harmonious. So you would never criticize somebody um, in front of other people. Like you would never call somebody out like, hey, did you fuck this thing up? And I made that mistake. Oops, sorry. I swore. Um, uh, you would never criticize somebody directly in front of their face. So, uh, at least not in front of other people. And I had this mistake where I had a, um, one of my team members made a small, like a really small mistake in, um, setting up a campaign and I was sitting in a meeting and I just like with her and with all of my other team members. And I noticed it and I was like, Oh, did you click the wrong button here? Um, I think we spent a bit too much money and she went like white as a ghost because she realized that she had made this mistake and was like, you know, like really kind of like sad and like suddenly very quiet. And I was like, oh, okay, we'll just fix it and I'll deal with it. And later one of my coworkers like pulled me aside and was like, oh, you, you can't do that. Like you can, you can talk to her like later about this problem, but you, you can't sit there and like like kind of um, address it right there because it's humiliating and you don't want to humiliate people even if you disagree with them and they mess something up and like that's like that's a a difference or um when somebody pitches you nobody will ever say no in taiwan right i'll never say no i don't want this what they'll say is um we will consider this more let's talk about this more um or they'll say yes, like, okay, we're ready to go. But it, like to a sort of a Western ear, it always sounds like yes. You make a pitch, <laughs> yes. And you're like, oh, great, I made the sale. But no, actually, you didn't make the sale. They're just like kind of being polite in a way um, that just uh, uh, kind of continues indefinitely the conversation. Um, and once something changes, then that, that sort of like 
nonsense, sort of like silly yes, like a BS yes, turns into a real yes, and then it actually happens. Um, so that was different. Um, and beyond that, um, I think there was like, yeah, there's just like other silly things. Like people are just, you know, they're, they're worried about like, like offending you. Like, um, for instance, I, I used to like turn up the AC really high. Right. And, um, I, I was like, oh, well it's like, nobody's complaining. So this, you know, and it's, it's, I like it to be pretty cold. So I assume everybody else is fine. And then I would always notice that like the dial on the AC would always like change if I like left the room and I'm like, Oh, it must be broken or something. So I got like a piece of tape and then I like went over and I like taped the dial. So it would stop turning. I thought like the spring in it was, was off. And then later I found out that as soon as I would get up and leave the room, my colleagues or like my team members would get up and then move the dial so that it wasn't as cold. Right. And like, and then I thought I was going crazy because it kept moving. Clearly it wasn't. And the problem is that there's this culture where you don't want to, you don't want to like confront your boss either. You don't want to say like, Hey, it's too cold in here. Do you mind if we like turn it up a little bit? Like I, I wouldn't have minded, but that's not something you do. And so it, that just sort of like that mindset where it's like, you know, um, clear relationships between, you know, superior and subordinates and like all that sort of stuff is like, it permeates every single thing you do. Um, and every single business interaction. Um, so that's all completely different than than the states, for sure. Okay, and what did you learn from Disney, Charpoost, and Lion Kong in terms of marketing? What would be your, you know, top marketing lessons and tips from those three companies to, let's say, an indie developer, somebody looking to launch their game that doesn't have the marketing clout that someone that Disney def that Disney does, but like what tips would you give to try and make your game successful or, or any product for that matter? Yeah, the, the key thing that I learned was about um, data-driven marketing and using data in order to justify decisions you're making. I think the old world of marketing is very much centered around just kind of doing like whatever, whatever you want, creating like a marketing plan, maybe basing it off of some, some data that you have from previous plans, but like, it's very slow moving and marketing that worked really well, um, in sort of like Disney's, uh, even in Disney's era was stuff that was like extremely reactive. It means changing, um, you know, the ad units or the creative assets or like, you know, the, the videos or, or images that you're using, like changing those frequently, um, trying to ensure that you're, um, following whatever the latest trends are on those particular things. I think the, a big thing that we learned is that like, honestly, like brand matters so little in like mobile marketing and mobile game marketing. There are very few mobile gaming brands that anybody who is not in the industry can name. I mean, most people, if you're like, who is a mobile game developer? Like if you ask somebody on the street and you'll hear like maybe Rovio or maybe King, maybe you'll hear a bunch of like the big triple A's. So they'll say like, oh yeah, EA or, um, you know, Activision, if they remember them. Um, and beyond that, like nobody knows any single brand. So it doesn't really matter. You don't really need to think about brands. 
Um, you might think about brand around your game. And so maybe there's like good work around influencers or stuff that you can do. But beyond that, it's like such a dynamic, fast moving and kind of like frothy um, industry that, um, that that stuff and that polish doesn't really matter. Um, doing big launches doesn't really matter. You can just sort of like slowly release your game as soon as you think there's something to play and then just begin tuning with real people. There's like almost a, there's a relative, um, like infinite supply of players. Um, because people will come back to your game after a while. If you like hit them with the right advertisement, um, you're never really going to max out on, on new players. And you can see this with like, you know, games like uh, Candy Crush and Clash of Clans have just been going, you know, forever. Um, and they're still getting new installs and they're still printing money. So there's a lot of opportunity there. I think that's like a big thing. The other thing is like measure everything and pick, you know, certain North stars that you're using to, um, uh, to tune to make sure that you're tuning to like retention and other simple metrics that you can get a hold of, like, you know, um, uh, retention, ARPU, uh, the average revenue per user, um, and stuff like that. And then like, just keep working on improving those little, um, those little KPIs and that's your ticket to success. Um, yeah, but measure everything. Don't just like throw money in a hole. Okay. After Lion Kong, you worked at Seeds. They say they are a payer conversion engine for digital games using social proof. You know, what does that actually mean? And again, what was your role there? Um, yeah, so um, Seeds um, was has actually changed its... Um, uh, kind of it's like overall mission. Um, but while I was there, um, Seeds was a tool essentially to um, connect um, developers with projects for social good. Um, so I was an advisor for Seeds for a long time. I, I knew the, the founder quite well. Um, and I wanted to help her out in this, um, in this project. So basically I went over for a little bit um, to kind of connect her to a bunch of developers uh, who might be interested. And what the tool would allow people to do is to implement a really small SDK in their game um, or, or app. Um, and the SDK would um, help them promote a very specific in-app purchase. So it would be something like a, um, uh, like a coin pack or something. And... Players could then click on that ad that Seeds would help serve. So Seeds would serve up an ad for the coin pack, see how many people made a purchase of that particular IAP of that coin pack, and then it would take a percentage of that revenue um, and would um, not donate it to charity, but it would um, lend it to entrepreneurs in the developing world. So the idea there was um, we're not doing charity because um, charity is sort of like one it kind of moves in one direction, but we can help people help themselves by going to like entrepreneurs. Um, and specifically, we, we were working with women in Kenya um, and we can give them a bit of money and it's like small amounts, small loans of like a couple hundred bucks that they can use to improve their businesses which then they turn around and they um, pay back really quickly 
Um, and then, you know, seeds would make that money back plus a little bit of interest. Um, uh, and then at the same time, be helping people kind of build their businesses. Um, so I, I helped with the connecting to developers part. Um, seeds has since changed its business model and become a little bit more like a um, kind of like a cryptocurrency for um, um, like, I guess a little bit more like a cryptocurrency for charity where you get specific tokens and then um, you can buy them or redeem them and they help to um, they basically help people in need, um, sort of like GoFundMe um, with whatever it is that they specifically, you know, whatever projects they need help with. Um, I left Seeds around the time that it was making the um, uh, transition from um, kind of like a gaming uh, social good as a service to a more of like a crypto focus. Um, uh, so I kind of like, you know, pieced out around that around that point. Um, since the crypto side of like GoFundMe, I think I found less interesting than working in games. Okay. And in 2017, you co-founded the company, The Ultra Bright. What did that company do? Uh, the Ultra Bright was a project I started with my wife where we kind of had a website and then we did like... Um, uh it was like a passion project where yeah we just like a website where we did like fashion blog posts and stuff like that um uh i think that was more of an excuse for for her and i to like hang out and take pictures than, than like a real business <laughs> but, but it's up there okay and i mean this question probably doesn't matter as much anymore but you said according to your linkedin you left the Ultra Boy after a year did the come did you just shut it down or did she just take it over permanently and take it to a div different direction? Oh um no we kind of like kept it around for a while I, we'll still take pictures I think we just sort of realized that like it it like so basically the the genesis behind this is that I had a former coworker who's um him and his wife are like very very successful. Uh, fashion influencers and so um i really at that time was it just like i kind of needed like a break from tech and i was like okay i want to do something that is just like very much a um hands-on sort of like artistic pursuit um and so we started doing that um we're like okay well maybe we can get this to be big enough to be like influencers or something but let's just have fun let's find our artistic vision and um get used to like you know, making content and stuff like that. Um, um, and so we kind of just started working on that. She ended up um, getting a job as a programmer and I went to go work at Colibri um, uh, in, in Germany. Um, so I think there's some content that's still around. I don't think the website is, maybe it is. Um, but the um, uh, bulk of it, like, we just sort of, you know, moved on. We still take pictures. We still do a lot of that stuff. We just don't really, like, publish them to our website and, like, write blog posts about, you know, why various scarves are better than other scarves. Like, that, that part we're not really doing so much anymore. But the fun photo part we still do. Okay. Do you use some other platform like Instagram instead to share the content, or is it purely private? Oh, yeah. It's mostly on her Instagram. Um, so you can... You can follow her. Her name is Wake Outside. Um, let me make sure I get her Instagram right. Uh, 
if people are listening and want to follow her. Um, I'll, I'll get all the relevant links off Nate uh, for this and anything else, and I'll put it in the description so uh, nobody will have an issue accessing it. But yeah, f- f- feel free to you know check if you're getting it right. Yeah, absolutely. And if you do want to find it, it is W E K O T S A I. So you can find it right there on uh, uh, on Instagram um, with mostly all the photos that I take. Some other, some that other folks have taken of her. Um, and then yeah, it it was like a really fun experience. Um, it was really fun to write the content and take the photos and like figure out how fashion photography works. Um, I got really into like Lightroom at the time and and stuff like that. So. Overall, it, like I would highly recommend taking a little time off to pursue something artistic or 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 creative or or just like fulfilling. Um, it's a good way to reset your your mind and your spirit. I think you kind of alluded to it, you know, previously a couple of questions ago. Who made the ultra bright website? Was it your wife? Because you said she went off to become a programmer. She uh, worked on it a bit. Um, I think we were using mostly a Squarespace um, plugin for that uh, at the time. Um, but she worked on it enough to the point where she realized that she enjoyed engineering. Um, and so she then went to, uh, when we moved to Berlin um, after that, she went to a coding school where she picked up um, a little bit more hard uh, technical skills and learned how to become a JavaScript programmer. Um, so while she didn't make our website, um, she did uh, um, uh, she did end up learning how to make those types of websites now, uh, which is super cool. And I think super courageous to go and make a, a career change like that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, that sort of, you know, coding class thing that you were saying, was that one of those sort of crash courses that, you see, like, with one, two, three weeks, or was it something else? Yeah, it was. So it was a coding crash course. I think it was pretty long. It was a, a couple months, maybe four months or so. Okay. Um, uh, so when we were looking for coding classes, we found um, uh, we kind of had, like, our guiding principle was it needs to be JavaScript, which basically all of them were. Um, it needs to be as long as possible, with the rationale being that would give the most exposure and the most, like, teach the most. Um, and it needed, um, one of the cool things that the one she went to had, which was a, a company called Ubicom, which I don't think is still in business, but the brand might be still out there um, uh, and, and being reused for something else. Um, so if you look it up, you'll, you can see that's a... Uh, U-B-I-Q-U-M, you become, um, uh, which I think is like a pun on like, you know, you will become something. Um, that one had a discount for um, for women uh, in order to kind of like encourage more to get into the industry, uh, which was cool because from like a price standpoint, um, A, um, it, was, it was a better deal and B, it meant that there was going to be a supportive environment for um, for women who code, which is super cool. Um, so that's, that's where she ended up going. And then she, she studied there for a while. She got certified, um, and then was able to transition to be a, um, front end developer for a, um, for a company that did, um, like health services online, uh, essentially like a, um, 
the company um, was for people who wanted to do medical tourism. So if they want to travel to like Turkey to get like, you know, hair plugs or something, um, this was like a platform that enabled people to do that. Um, she left uh, when COVID started. And unfortunately, um, that was a really bad time to be in either anything that is like uh, uh, tourism related or anything that is um, uh, like medical related uh, for for elective medical procedures. It just was not a good time for either of those things. And to be doing both of those things simultaneously was was not so hot. Um, so she later went on to work at a company called Data for Life, which is um, where uh, she did a lot more work on like COVID dashboards and things like that, which is super cool. Okay. And after she did that coding course, how did she find it going into or getting her first role? Do you think she found it harder than if she had gone to university, got a, you know, computer science or some sort of engineering degree? And obviously, I'm not asking for specifics. Do you think the salary reflected that or was it, you know, similar to as if she had done university and she was going in as a junior? Um, in Germany, uh, which is which is where we're, we're living at that point in the story, um, I think it was harder. I think in in Germany specifically, they tend to um, really favor folks who um who have like university degrees Mm -hmm. um i don't think the salary necessarily was any lower but um she did need to apply to a literally i think it was like a hundred um uh like companies before she got yeah it was and and she kept a spreadsheet of like all Mm -hmm. hundred so i know it was the hundred and first was was this company uh, that she ended up working for um i know other people who did coding schools in the bay area and they um, they were there's like so much more tech money like floating around the bay that it was much easier to get a job for people out there. Um, and they moved much quicker and they ended up with like super high, you know, Bay, bay Area engineering salaries. Um, I think to some degree that's cooled off a bit and it's no longer as um, it's no longer as much of like a buyer's market. I'm sorry, a, a seller's market, if you will, um, when it comes to um, uh, being a recent grad in the in the Bay Area tech world. It's a bit harder. I think people want uh, to see a little bit more on like you know professional schooling um, uh, than than there used to be. Okay, and when she switched companies, did she find it easier because she had obviously got a company on a CV and, you know, some sort of portfolio now, or was it still a bit of an upward struggle? Um, it was a bit of an upward struggle. And I think a lot of that was just because of like the timing being that it was like, um, you know, early 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and suddenly there were just like a ton of people who were laid off. Uh, spe- specifically from all sorts of tech jobs that maybe had more of a, um, you know, a focus on like, you know, things that could no longer be done anymore in in the the new normal. Um, so right, like if you were running a, a travel service or an event service or a, um, you know, whatever, like suddenly all these people just like didn't have um, didn't have jobs anymore, and so they were all kind of floating. Um, th- she was a bit lucky though um, because. 
the founder of the company that she had previously been working for um, knew the management team at the company she ended up working for. So um, her former boss, essentially her former CEO made a really nice introduction and, um, and kind of helped to smooth that transition over. Um, she still had to go, of course, through all of like the interview process and, and everything like that, but it ended up being a, um, a little bit smoother. Um, I wonder now if she was applying, what it would be like since, since a lot of this COVID stuff is, although apparently it's, it's still floating around is like no longer impacting businesses the same way. Um, but, um, um, yeah, it'd be an, an interesting to see how, how it is for people trying to get hired these days. Okay. And did she have a technical background, you know, prior to this? Cause I hear, a lot of you know people are saying all the time they want to become a programmer, they want to get into like a technical field field like that, and most of the time they don't have a technical background, and that puts them off. I've seen people do it; they are rare. So I'm just wondering, did she have a technical background, or was it literally a 180 from what she was doing before? It was a 180. Yeah. So she used to um, be a singer songwriter under contract in Taiwan. Um, and she like worked for a, a music um, production facility, um, uh, like this like recording company out there. Um, and so this was vastly different from that. Um, and prior to that, she went to university at the University of Edinburgh for fashion. Um, and this was also very much not fashion, <laughs> so it was it was pretty different. Um, before she, she embarked on like the coding school, she did like a two months of, um, a website called Code Academy, which helped introduce her to JavaScript so that she knew that, you know, what to expect and if she would like it or not. Okay. Yeah. Code Academy is a website that I recommend to a lot of people that aren't coders and that are looking to get into it. How did she find that, um, you know, going into it from nothing? I think it was good as an introduction. Um, I think the challenge for her was that um, she uh, wanted more like hands-on guidance, which is something that you don't get from Codecademy. But I think in the early stages, when you're first just like learning, you know, what an if statement is and, you know, how to print hello world and, and how to deal with variables and all this kind of stuff, like it is, it is a pretty useful introduction so that when she jumped into um, her, her, like the developer bootcamp at Ubicom, she already knew a lot of what to expect. Um, that bootcamp had people who either like had deep technical backgrounds that were just like looking for, you know, how to do things in JavaScript all the way to people who were, um, had never, you know, touched a command line before. So she was kind of somewhere maybe in the middle of her experience. Um, but it was a really good way to know first and foremost, like, is this something you like doing? Like, if you like sitting in, you know, uh, in one, you know, in a cafe for, for eight hours at a time, like plugging away at like a, a black screen. Um, yeah, this is for you. If, if you get really tired of that after about two hours and want to do something else, then then uh, this is a cheaper way to find out than like going to university or like doing one of these crash courses, right? And quicker as well, because that's the other Imagine. thing. Because obviously, you know, cost is one thing, but maybe, you know, 100 grand, whether your cost to go out, 
you know, uni will be in whatever country you are. Maybe that's not a lot of money for you and your family, but then you still got the time aspect. It, you know, you don't want to spend three, four years at the, because I know, I know people like that, that went to university with me. And then at the end, I mean, they got the degree, they got a degree in programming, and then they didn't do anything with it. It just didn't, didn't excite them enough. So yeah, there's that as well. Like the time aspect, finding out within two to four months or so, you know, is definitely a lot better than spending multiple years as well. Exactly. Yeah. I think that, I think all of those things are true and all of those things, um, helped to to make this decision um which was great that these things are like out there and they're free and you can just like you know try it out and and they're um they're also pretty fun like i'm not much of a programmer but i tried out the code academy thing for a little bit um and had a had a fun time of it it's like pretty fulfilling uh tool to use yeah um with code academy i don't know how it is now but i remember trying it probably in the first couple or so years of when it launched. And I found that if you wasn't a coder, which I was, uh, it was pretty difficult because you would get a set of instructions, you would do the instructions, or you would get a, like a goal that you need to achieve. You write the code, it technically would work. And I know it would work because, you know, like I was saying, I was a coder and I knew that code should work and I tested it outside of the Code Academy environment. And but it wouldn't work on their environment because they needed it. They wanted it formatted in the set exact way that they was looking for. I'm hoping that's still not the case anymore. Uh, but that aspect of it for a beginner, I think, could have been a bit daunting. I feel like they probably have fixed it by now because that was many years ago. Did she or did you, when you used it, come across any issues like that that you just felt I, like what you wrote it sh- just should work, but in it just didn't? I think it still works like that to some degree. I think that's still one of the problems and one of the reasons that after a certain point, um, you sort of like hit your limit with what you can do in Code Academy because they're teaching you to do things a certain way, just as you say, that aren't necessarily the way that you have to do it. Uh, And I think what you soon discover when you're like learning a program is that there's, you know, a hundred different ways to accomplish the same thing. Um, and there's different, you know, nuances in why you would pick one way or over the other. Um, and there's different, um, you know, positives and negatives, but like a, the sort of like Codecademy terminal can't really express that to you very, very well. Um, I, I used another system too, cause I was learning Python and what I found is that like after a certain point, like you just, you stop get getting valuable feedback from the system and you, you essentially like you could be self-directed and do your own stuff, but, um, you know, that's great for autodidacts, but like, if you want, you know, to, to learn why something is better than the others, or if you even did things right, like the online learning tools that are like automated, like they only are so useful for so long, um, before you need like another human being to intervene and actually like show you what to do. Like I've had this experience with like, trying to learn a language on Duolingo to like, I took like a product management course. It was probably the worst, the worst online course I've ever taken was the product <laughs> management course. And it was just what like, did they cover? like what was their highlights? Um, it was designed to teach people how to be product managers specifically for apps and games. Um, and it was really like poorly 
Um, like there were some things where you like, there's like, you know, basic instruction, here's what a KPI is and here's how you like use the software. And uh, it was using something called amplitude, which is like a pretty common, um, uh, analytics software. Um, and you're like learning how to do things and you're learning to avoid some basic mistakes. Like if somebody was teaching you how to use amplitude, but then it, it started getting into a point where like they would ask you something like, oh, um, you know, you notice that there's, um, you know, some weird data on these days. Um, why is there weird data on those days? And you're like, okay, so you look at it and you, you play around a little bit and you're like, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe you know, there was like a re release of the app and it broke or something. And then, and then it would say like, nope, you're wrong. The answer is because there's like a holiday in that particular state in the country that um, the app was released. I'm like, that's not, this is not useful. <laughs> like, this is so like esoteric and random that like, uh, like the first time, okay, it's kind of funny. Like, okay, that's, that's interesting. I'll try and keep that in mind. But then like every single assignment they would give you would end with some like weird gotcha, you know, like, uh, like that. Um, and the assignments were like, you know, here, write like 10 paragraphs on, you know, this, this question about like what this fictional company should do with their analytics data and like how they, you know, they have this app and look at the data and tell us what they, how this company should act if you're the product manager. But then there was no very feedback on whether or not you were right. It would just say like, okay, thanks for your submission. And then it would move on to the next question. You're like, wait a second, I just spent like an hour writing this whole thing. And you're not even going to tell me if like I was right or wrong. Like, I think they did so many things wrong. Uh, it was, it was for me, um, pretty, pretty annoying. Um, and in that case, my, my company paid for it. Um, but it was like a thousand dollar, like online class, which is far more than, than, than many online classes are. Um, and I think it was, it was just like a complete waste of time. And like, I knew people who were like advisors to that company and I explained to them, I'm like, this is, this is probably one of the worst things I've ever, I've ever used. I, I don't like to like get up and I won't name them because, um, I'll be nice, but like, it was, it was pretty appalling. So I guess you have to be super careful about like the types of these things you, you do and like which classes you end up, um, you end up enrolling in. Yeah, for sure. Do you think that the company that put you on the course was literally just ticking a box? Like, you know, Nate's gone on, you know, some sort of project management course, tick done. Or did you think they genuinely, you know, thought that it would help? Oh, well, so the company that, that um, paid for the course is, uh, so I, I worked at Ubisoft, right? So they, 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 they paid for it. And when I was there, I, um, I, uh, I have a close friend who worked in like the finance department and he was going through this whole like, you know, journey where he was learning how to program and then he was learning like product management and he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do because he didn't want to do finance. And so he recommended this course to me, uh, which is why I did it. And he loved it. He thought it was like a great course and they were like really clever and he like learned so much and he thought it was like really, really brilliant. Um, and, and so I took that and I was like, okay, this is, you know, this is highly recommended. So I went to my, uh, like there was a, a learning and development team at, um, at Ubisoft, if it still is. Um, and their job was to give people, um, you know, funds to take courses or give them books or other learning materials, uh, which is a super good idea. Um, and they had all of that. And then they, um, uh, so they, they paid for it, but like, 
they were like, are you sure you want to do this? Because like, this is really expensive. I'm like, oh, well, you know, it comes high, super recommended. They're like, okay. Uh, and then I followed up with them later. And they're like, so what do you think of the course? And I was like, don't let anybody spend money on that. <laughs> that was definitely not worth it. Um, um, so I guess in a way, yeah, it was their job to ch- check the box and make sure that I like did my learning and development. Um, yeah. So before we move on to your next roles, you've been mainly doing roles in games companies. Why the gaming industry compared to, you know, some other media-related industry or even the, you know, news industry? Um, I just resonate more, I think, with entertainment. I went to film school, and um, I really like working on things that entertain people. When I was in high school, uh, I did a lot of, like, theater and acting, and I found that really fulfilling. And in university, I thought the next logical step would be film um, because um, it's a medium that you can use to entertain a lot of people all over the world. And I think um, I liked games. I kind of like got into games because I first needed a job, right? When I I went to work at Disney, Um, I just come out of school and it was like a cool opening and I knew people who worked there. but what I came to fall in love with was with games, other than the fact that I play games avidly, is that um, games allow you to make incremental improvements to an entertainment product, which is not something that you can easily do with basically any other medium. It, you can't really have a, a movie where every week you're like iterating and adding a new scene or removing a scene. Like once you make a movie, it's essentially done. And there are directors, of course, you know, who who will release their director's cut, you know, uh, a year, two years later, blah, blah, blah. But like the vast majority of people um, in in film and TV, like they can't really have that luxury of, of slowly making something better. So I like that about games. I like that it was based on data and also based on intuition. Um, and um, uh, it, it was emerging. There's like a huge industry and it's just like exploding in terms of, you know, industry growth. And it, every year it's just increasing in size, which means it's a good time to get in, learn the ropes and then just kind of like stick with it. Um, the people who work in games are also like super, super um, nice and, and fun and humble and just great to be around. So, you know, I'm surrounded by a bunch of people that are that are like minded in a lot of ways, um, which which makes it even better. Yeah, I feel like, again, you let me know your opinion on it. I feel like the people in the gaming industry are more humble than the ones in, let's say, film industry, partly because gaming is kind of still, in some people's eyes, seen as a joke or as like a kid's thing, even though it dwarfs the movie industry, it dwarfs the, you know, the music industry and the film industry combined. It dwarfs them, but it's still considered like a play thing, almost like not as serious. Do you think that might be part of why the people there are more humble compared to in movies? It's like, oh, I'm in movies, I'm on this big, you know, movie compared to the people I spoke to that I work at big games companies and on big, you know, AAA titles. You're right, they are a lot more grounded. Obviously, it depends on the individual, but as a whole, than people in movies where, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, this so-and-so coordinator on this movie. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's um, that for sure, the fact that it's, it's originally more associated with kids. I think um, some of the other factors 
um, that you were kind of alluding to are like, there aren't many, like, how do I put this? There aren't many like famous, sexy game developers, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's something where um, people who make the games are kind of hidden behind um, their computer screens and like off in offices and they're not, you know, out on like, there's not like a bunch of, you know, um, like with a movie, you like, you have tons of press and then there's big events and then there's the actors who are real human beings and people can like relate to them. So the, they get trotted out to go to the award shows and to go to the premieres and they're, you're watching them the entire time. But in a, in a game, like there are characters a lot, often and, you know, those characters are reasonably famous. People can recognize Mario or, or Link. Um, but those are their digital creations, right? So it's not like, like that's a real human being who, like, grew up, you know, in, in some place and is, um, you know, has a backstory and a family and ages and has drama behind the scenes and, like, you know, whatever. Um, with with a game that doesn't exist it like was created by people um and the the people who are creating it are changing constantly so like the people who work at nintendo 30 years ago don't really work at nintendo anymore except for a few and some of those like game designers are famous among among people but like the most played games of all time like uh nobody could um tell me like who who designed candy crush like who are the game designers like, right? Like, that's that's one of the biggest games of all time, but in terms of sheer number of players out there. But um, but nobody is, you know, that those people aren't famous. They're not, you know, walking down the red carpet or whatever. Um, so I think that's, like, it's just a matter of, like, visibility of, like, the people who are working on it. Um, that's a big part of it. Um, um, and I think that's that's a lot of why, like, it hasn't quite gone to the heads of a lot of the people in games. Don't get me wrong, there are some folks like in every industry that you will meet that are, you know, maybe less pleasant to be around in, in video games. Um, and those people exist and there's definitely some egos. Um, and, but I think it's less of a, um, it's because it's less visible. You don't get that as much. Um, um, and really to your point, like, you know, uh, because it's, it's seen as such like a kid's thing that it's not um, people's egos don't get as inflated, which you could then contrast with, say, like fashion, where in fashion, yeah, there's the people who are behind the scenes, who are the designers and running the the fashion houses are also less visible to some degree, although they go to the, the fashion shows. But fashion is taken so seriously and has been taken so seriously for so long that those people can, you know, get famous and and maybe that's where some of the working conditions there you know sprout out of because uh uh people's like you know uh people people's egos can inflate a bit and so you'll get like a devil's or devil wears prada situation right where like you're at the top of the food chain and then it 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 is just swimming with ego um uh games are more humble not as humble as like i don't know if you work in like the the forestry industry or or, or if you're like make bitumen all day like yeah those those people are probably quite humble um because they don't have that kind of fame but um it's somewhere in between yeah i think it kind of comes down to if you're around some random people or at the dinner table you know you know at a dinner function if 
your job and your title excites more people i feel like they're the less humble ones it's like you could get a fashion designer that's let's say making a hundred grand a year but they're designing clothes that you know a lot of rich people a lot of influential people want to wear and they like them but likewise you could get somebody on the table that that's a 22 year old you know at a you know university he made some mobile hit and he's making you know, like a, you know a million a month I feel like the fashion designer for the long term will probably get more attention than the game creator. I feel like the game creator might get a, ooh, that's cool and interesting. You know, that's your little hobby thing. But even then, even when the money is serious, it won't be as interesting. And I feel like that, you know, inflates their ego because, you know, the people around there, the powerful people, the rich people are, you know, effectively, you know, throwing fuel on the flame they're the ones you know inflating it yeah i think that's a huge part of it for sure um yeah games games kind of has a long way to go there um some people really like them um uh, like obviously kids get excited when they find out you you work in games mm. um and it, it was funny too because in san francisco if you told people you worked in games like people would be like meh like I've, I, you know, they know so many other people who work in yeah. games. It's exciting, uh, it, and so you're like, okay, I guess I'm not that cool. Um, and but out here in, in Germany, where I'm now, it's like a little bit more of like a, it's a little bit cooler, I think. Yeah. Um, but you have to, you have to like, kind of test the waters a little bit because some people just hate games. Like I, I definitely mm-hmm. told one person that I made games, but this was this was in Chicago. Um, and he was like a music teacher and he's like, he was like angry at me. He's like, oh, it's your fault that none of my students practice their instruments anymore. <laughs> I was like, okay, sorry. Um, I, I, I don't know how to fix that, but, uh, I hope they're playing some cool games then. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. They might go on to making music for games. I think that will probably, you know, annoy him even more. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that's a great industry too. Music for games, seeing him. Oh yeah, for sure. And again, I think that's another one that doesn't get that much attention or love as well. And, you know, respect. Cause I remember a few years ago, there was a concert in London. I didn't attend it at the time, but they played a bunch of classic video game music. They had Mario, they had Mass Effect, Call of Duty, GTA, all that sort of stuff. I, so it's the London Philharmonic video game or orchestra you can get it on spotify so it's so you can check out what they're playing but i remember talking about it and people that weren't really heavily into gaming they they just saw it as a joke and then they were just thinking why would you want to go there to listen to that and it's it's you know accepted enough that you might go to a concert to listen to film music and they definitely accepted that you'll go to a concert to listen to somebody singing or a, you know, a band playing, but yeah, I, there's still that stigma. And I think it just links back to just cause it's gaming. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. I think it's something that, uh, it'll take some time, but, um, a game did win, uh, a, um, a Grammy not too long ago. So I think it's, it's possible. We'll see, you know, more and more of that, uh, as, as time goes on and as the, younger generations sort of like, you know, grow into their, their political and cultural power. Mm, yeah. I'm just hoping that it doesn't 
these awards and mainstream sort of success metrics don't get to the head of you know the people that are in charge or you know the up and coming designers and creators because that sort of lack of attention lack of you know kind of respect has you know kept them humble but also kept them creating great content the problem we you see with i mean it's a problem in games but it's definitely a problem in music and in movies is there's just so much rinse and repeat and there's just so much you know just pandering to politics uh, and you know just putting this person or you know this this storyline in there and tweaking it just so it's you know better for the political ecosystem whereas in, in games there's not that much of that. When you do get a little bit of it, there's a huge uproar because that's not what's typically done in games. So I'm hoping that, because at the end of the day, the gaming industry is doing fine financially. They're bigger than movies, they're bigger than music combined. So it's not like they need those traditional success metrics to actually have success. So I'm just hoping they can stay grounded and you know keep creating great content that is what they want to create and not what they feel like the political ecosystem dictates to them. I think a lot of times um, the reason that people will um, kind of like do things that are maybe more politically palatable or like of the, of the zeitgeist, right. uh, Tend to be kind of like laziness. It feels like so. So I watch a lot of like, or, you know, with my wife, we watch a lot of like a lot of Netflix and you'll see, um, there's definitely like a recycling of a lot of the same stories um, uh, and like a lot of the same character tropes and stereotypes. Um, And while I think it's like a good thing to have like, you know, a a diversity of like characters and experience represented, like, of course, like that's a great thing. But I think where a lot of these storytellers fail is they're like, okay, well, this person of this background um, their story is, is ABC and it's always going to be ABC. Like, you know, either they're going to have like these troubles or these types of relationships, or, you know, um, they're going to have these types of troubles with this relationship. And it's just like, it's so rote. It's like the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and then it just becomes the center of the storyline. And I think that what's frustrating about that sort of thing is that it, it, it tends to be, um, really um it's just like lazy it's like you can't tell any other stories about you know say like the the person is from um i will just pick something um let's say we're setting a a tv show right in like mexico or something so there's a lot of things that are like really interesting and cool and fascinating about mexico we don't need to see another story set in mexico necessarily that is like about a like say a drug cartel like there's just infinitely more interesting things that we can talk about in Mexico, and and you'll see with like a, particularly with with uh, filmmakers and and on TV that I think the sheer amount of content that comes out, you end up with just like really really lazy writing that leads you into those types of depictions of um, human experiences when there's a lot more that goes on um, in every aspect of, of humanity. So in games. Um, you, you do see a degree of that. Um, you'll see, you know, okay, let's, 
let's um, you know depict gangs this way, or let's make things about gangs. Um, uh, and that's the only way that the story can exist is you know if we have like gang members and they all look like this and they all talk like this and they all do these types of things. And like yeah, I guess if you're GTA, you can have that because um, that's like been your mainstay. And there's like a few games similar to that that they've kind of kind of got around. Um, but um, you know like Saints Row and stuff like this. But like you, there are other tales there's other narratives there's other game designs and mechanics that we can work around where we don't have to like be so so like lazy um um and that's just kind of like i mean it's it's interesting right because like sometimes these types of like cultural things are very um they're shortcuts and those can be useful so say i want to make a movie about you know, drug cartels, and I'm going to go to, you know, Colombia or, or Mexico, and you'll instantly understand, like, what this thing is, like, what's, you know, who are these people with guns with all of this, like, these white packages, like, on the table? Oh, I know where I, you know, I understand this is a, a drug cartel. Great. But, um, uh, like, we talk about this, like, especially in our studio, like, with the types of games that we're trying to make. It's like, let's make them um, more, let's try and challenge some of those stereotypes and some of those norms and trying like making this a little bit more interesting um, and, and and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't like for instance like if you want to have you know a fantasy game like fantasy games like every if you think about every fantasy game you play or think about every fantasy movie you see and almost every time like elves represent something and there's always trolls are always bad guys and goblins are bad guys and elves are like the superiors smart species and and orcs and ogres are the bad ones and humans are in between and dwarves are basically like you know scottish gold miners and it's like it's like the same thing over and over if i were to come in and tell you okay the elves are like dumb and evil and the dwarves are like you know mystical and and hyper intelligent or maybe just mystical and the goblins or the ogres or the trolls are like hyper intelligent and and you know the good guys like you would come into that and you'd be like super confused. Like, what the hell is going on? Um, who, why is everything upside down here? Why do I have to really learn how everything works? And like, yeah, so maybe you don't want to spend all the time, you know, teaching everybody like all new set of reality and a new paradigm that they need to, to adhere to. But then again, like, you know, you're torn between that and then just playing the same stupid game with the same characters that's copy paste from something else. Um, so, so I guess, I guess like the real <laughs> lesson there is like, um, you know, at least from my personal experience is like, don't be lazy, like try and try and challenge the norms and do that in, in every, you know, in every artistic medium. Okay. So moving on, you worked five years at Calibri Games. What did you do there? Um, at Calibri, um, I worked on um, a bunch of different things. It was really cool. Um, I worked on ad monetization since I had the background from Charboost, uh, and I could help uh, Calibri generate a lot more ad revenue, which is my first task was, like, get new networks, optimize the networks, um, work out a few good deals with the, the various um, ad platforms, um, and um, uh, try and, you know... Uh, monitor and optimize that over time, come up with a system, which I did. Um, then I also worked on like kind of an assortment of various um, 
like procurements. Um, so if we're going to work on a new contract with a new, a new platform, um, you know, a, a, an analytics platform, let's make sure we have a good contract in place and we're not paying too much money and we have good opt-outs. If we're going to look at IP, if we want, you know, our game to appear in a Netflix show, which is something I worked on, um, how does that work and, and how do we, how do we get that through? Um, uh, and, and make a process around that. So I, I worked on like all sorts of random things. Um, we looked at publishing for a while. We looked at acquiring a studio for a while, like kind of like did a bunch of different things. The main, the main objective was, um, keep the lights on. Um, so stay focused on, you know, things that'll generate revenue and then get out there and tell Colibri's story. Um, I think Colibri knew very early on that they wanted to sell their company. Um, and, uh, so my objective was to make sure that Colibri looked as good as possible to all of the potential people that would be acquiring the company. So I spent a lot of time at trade shows, um, talking to, um, you know, some of like the bigger, um, uh, publishers and other companies that might potentially buy, uh, buy Colibri. Um, ultimately we were bought by Ubisoft, um, which kind of came out of nowhere, but uh, had been looking to develop their um, uh, their strategy on mobile, and so Colibri fit quite nicely into their um, the types of acquisitions that they wanted to do around that strategy. Okay, and how long was you there for when it got bought out by Ubisoft? Uh, well, I joined. Um, Let's see. Uh, I think I had been there for about two years. Um, uh, let me think. Yeah, I was there for about two and a half years uh, before they were they were acquired, and then I stuck around for another two years after the acquisition had happened um, uh, before before starting my own studio. Okay. And how was it like working there once Ubisoft? bought them out was there any difference at all um initially there wasn't much of a difference um and the um the founders of colibri were still at colibri so they they um the founders and the executive team were all there so they kind of like kept a, a tight um a tight rein on things and so you didn't see a lot of like uh, influence from Ubisoft. Most of the influence was just in like, let's make sure all of the contracts are like with Ubisoft and let's make sure all of the, um, um, the, uh, like various, like financial reporting is all done the Ubisoft way because Ubisoft is a public company and, and it has to be done that way. Um, I think over time as like the founders left and then as the, um, uh, more like Ubisoft kind of like began to exert more and more and more influence. And some of this was like super good. I mean, like Ubisoft opened the door to do a lot of like IP integrations with like Assassin's Creed and um, Just Dance and stuff like that, which was super cool. Um, uh, and some of it was like behind the scenes, you know, okay, let's, let's make sure that we're all working together on marketing and stuff like that. Um, over time, that became more and more and more. Uh, but ultimately, Ubisoft Mobile, at least, has a very like laissez-faire approach to a lot of their studios. So as long as you are doing a good job and you are 
generating revenue for the company, nobody's really going to come in and tell you what to do. Like they, they don't actually like to um, get too controlling um, um, when it comes to their, their approach. They'll, they'll try, like they're very helpful. Like you'll meet everybody at Ubisoft, which is cool. Um, and there's a lot of cool events and, and there's a lot of people who want to help you with various things, but, um, um, you know, help make sure you're, you're, you have access to all the data you need or all of the files you want, or that you're, you're, you know, on the IT side, you're all set up and squared away, or that you can talk to anybody you want to talk to. Like they will, everybody there is immensely helpful if you want to be helped. If you, if you want to not be helped, then, you know, you can retreat and nobody's really going to harass you too much. Okay. And since March of this year, you have been an advisor for flagship games group. You see people, you know, being advisors to community like this all the time. They have this on their, you know, bio. What does that actually mean? Sure. In this case, um, so the guy who sold, who the CFO of Colibri, who helped to sell the company to Ubisoft, um, went and started a company afterwards. Um, and flagship's objective is to acquire other smaller gaming studios, um, package them together, um, and then list on a stock exchange um, as sort of like a new publisher, right? So they're, they're kind of like a publishing startup similar to Stillfront or Embracer Group. So um, as, an, as an advisor, my, my role is actually very specific. Um, so I have all of this business development experience from when I was at Chartboost and from when I was at um, Seeds and from, from um, Calibri, of course. Um, and so I help them if there is somebody specifically that they want to talk to and they know that either I am directly connected to them or I'm like, you know, one or two people away from them. Um, so it's quite easy for me to, to get an introduction. Um, I'll help them out very specifically with that task. Um, so it's not something that takes a tremendous amount of my time, um, but is helpful in them at kind of advancing their um, their sales pipeline to acquire new studios. Um, so it's been a great experience because I can then talk to the founder of that company, who, um, as we'll get to probably in a second, since I, I founded my own game studio, he he advises me in return on okay. If you want your company to sell eventually, or if you just want to like, if you want to go public, or if you want to do anything, this is how you run a tight ship when it comes to finances and legal and accounting for um, for your own studio. This is like the, follow these steps and uh, don't do anything you know too wacky on the on the finance and legal side, and and you will be in ship shape when it comes to um, comes to whatever you know uh, whatever those objectives are. Okay. And now, finally, to get on to the part that I've been really looking forward to talk about, Roma Games, the company you founded in, I believe, February of this year. What is the goal of Roma Games? What does it do? Sure. So in February, um, I left um, uh, Colibri um, and then with a few folks launched Romer Games. Um, these were people that I knew um, from when I was at mostly at Colibri. Um, and so we had team members joining from, uh, from Colibri, from, um, uh, from Wargaming and from, um, uh, from Appleven, 
Um, and we kind of got, to, we got together and we wanted to make games that are, um, basically like new genre defining games. So we raised, um, a good amount of money from, um, from our friends at, uh, Play Ventures. Um, and we launched, uh, a game <laughs> that was, um, kind of like an experimental sort of like 2d animal crossing kind of game, animal crossing meets the Sims. Um, and then, uh, pivoted a bit away from that and are now focusing on a Forex strategy game. So a game very similar to like a civilization, um, on PC or a polytopia on mobile. And we're making a game that's like that, um, but is much more focused and, um, much more like kind of a quicker sessions. And what we're trying to do is to, um, uh, kind of like revolutionize that genre. It's a genre that has been sort of like very stale for a very long time. There's not, there hasn't been that much innovation uh, in the forex genre. Mostly, what you'll see when it's a mobile game studio, right? So mostly, when you see people doing mobile game studio or mobile game forexes, they tend to be very much like menu after menu after menu, and like very like it's like a spreadsheet with an interface and a, a buy now button. And it, like they're they're actually not super interesting games for the majority of the world. A very very specific audience is into those types of um, types of forex games, and we're not a big fan of those types of forex games. We want to make forex games that are more accessible to kind of like casual strategy players, similar to um, a game you know to what Clash Royale and Clash of Clans have done for um uh, for strategy right like those games are strategy but it's very easy to get into and very easy to understand and there's deep strategy to them and they monetize pretty well um but they're more democratizing in their approach than some of these like super hardcore strategy games so we kind of want to do this in the forex genre if you're not familiar with the forex genre um it is uh, in in the traditional pc world um it's usually like a turn-based strategy game. Sometimes it's a real-time strategy game. Um, and they're games that like have been around since, I don't know, the beginning of uh, most PC games. Uh, and the four X's actually stand for Explore, Expand, Exploit, and Exterminate. So usually these are games that are like kind of PvP or, or, or PV, um, uh, PvE, like a computer player. Um, and the basic tenets of it are, you know, you start off on a, a map. It's it's usually like a dark map. There's a fog of war. You don't know what's around you. So you need to explore. Um, you usually start off with a small base or a small city. And um, you need to expand that. So maybe at the very beginning, you can't do a whole lot. Maybe you have like a farm or maybe you have like a, you know, uh, a very limited capability. Maybe just like a little you know, production facility or something. So you need to grow your base. You need to get, you know, more farms and start cutting down trees or start building, you know, uh, barracks to train troops and do all that sort of stuff. Um, you need to come across resources usually. So if there's trees, you got to cut them down. Or if there's, you know, minerals, you have to mine them. Okay. And then exterminate, right? So you're going to come up against your opponents and you need to have the superior, usually it's a superior army, um, sometimes there's other things like culture or economy or something, um, or religion. Um, but usually you have a superior army and you need to exterminate your opponents. Um, and it's sort of like the, um, 
they range in size from from small strategy games like the one we're making on mobile up to what are called grand strategy games like uh games like Stellaris or um or Civilization or stuff like that um that are just like these big epic experiences so we're trying to make something along those lines um but a bit more for mobile and a bit more um uh, a bit more friendly for uh um uh, monetizing Okay, so you've raised money for Roma Games from VCs. What was that process like? Um, it was different than I thought it would be. Um, so we went through this process where we identified um, uh, a bunch of um, VCs that we thought would be good to, um, to connect with. Um, and then we kind of ranked them all um from uh a to c and so we started at c and we began like a lot of the c level ones were interesting investors but we thought that maybe maybe they wouldn't be so interested in us and and you know they would or like they were friends and they would take like a courtesy um a courtesy call but basically they would tell us what was wrong with our pitch um so we could kind of get a little bit of practice and if they wanted to invest sure that's great um, in most cases, but, um, we knew that they probably wouldn't be so interested and we did that and we started working our way up the C category, then getting ready to go to the B category. But somebody who was on actually several people on the C list were like, Hey, so this isn't right for us, but I know this one person. Um, and, uh, that one person was the top of our A list. <laughs> and before we could, like, if somebody says that to you, you're, you know, you don't say, don't introduce me. You say, yes, please introduce me. Um, and so then they introduced us to that person and that person, um, didn't really even look at our pitch. Like they, they, they listened to it at it to be courteous and they read the deck, but they were basically like, okay, we're in, uh, we'll put in money. Um, and, and we just want to meet the rest of your team and then we're going to be ready to go. So that happened extremely fast. That was like a 20 minute call. And they're like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll put in either all of the million or a million and uh, 1.15, uh, all of the money, or, you know, we can do a part of it, but we want to be the lead investor here. And we were like, okay, wow, that was super fast and super cool. That was cool. Um, uh, then, um, after that, I mean, it was like a because of COVID, it was a bit things moved a bit slower in general. But um, then we went through the process of um, getting the uh, legal stuff out of the way, and then we just kind of incorporated our company, and that was like its own its own sort of thing. Okay, and so when the lead investor or the person, the investor that became the lead investor, when they said. Will either invest all of it or like the you know the biggest chunk of it. Was they basically giving you that decision, or was that basically them saying once we've decided where we stand, we'll decide? Um, they gave us the decision, so okay. they wanted to invest all of it, but there were uh, strategically, I wanted to work with um a few more investors because my rationale was this will um, open us up to more investors further down the line. So the more, A, the more, more investors further down the line, and B, um, uh, it will provide more guidance. So one big thing when it comes to uh, investors and VCs is like, it's, it's actually not just a one-way street. It's not just you getting, like, pitching to them, and then you're grateful to have any money you can. 
you want to pick investors who are going to be providing value beyond just the cash, but actually like teaching you uh, uh, or providing advice or guidance. Um, so we wanted to work with Play Ventures, who's the, the one we, we ended up working with, because um, these were folks that had run their own game studios, sold their own game studio, and were extremely well connected to all of the like, you know, major game developers, um, publishers, um, you know, and they could give us advice like, hey, like this is what's wrong with your product uh, or this is what's wrong with your marketing. Um, and a few of the other studios that we chose to work with or the other investors we chose to work with also had that advantage. So we could we could um, get a little bit more bang for our buck there. If we're going to be selling, you know, 20 percent of our company, then I want to make sure that we're maximizing what we're getting for that 20 percent. So um, we got Play Ventures who put in the bulk of the cash. Um, the former founders, the people I used to work for at, at Calibri also did um, uh, put in some money, which is great. Um, the then we also had an advisor um, who who put in some cash as well, which is nice. Um, and he runs his own game studio. Um, and we had um, something called a syndicate. If people aren't familiar with it, that's usually like a group of people that all go together to like make an investment. Um, and the reason you want to do it with a syndicate is that um, usually you have a bunch of people who have like who don't have you know fifty or a hundred thousand dollars to make an investment. Maybe they have. $5,000, but um, nobody wants to get, you know, uh, uh, 50 people with $5,000 on their cap table. So instead they do a syndicate, which is, okay, it's all going under one person's name and that person's like the, you know, executive of that like little mini investment company. Um, and then you get, of course, after that access to all of those people. So, you know, and those were all people in the industry, like friends, um, uh, 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 old friends, new friends um who who had experience and and knew what they were doing so you know you can then go and talk to them and be like hey you're an investor in my studio um can you tell me how you're doing marketing can you give me 20 minutes to like just or an hour and teach me how you're doing marketing what advice you have and they're like yeah sure because there's incentive there they gave you five thousand dollars and now they're gonna you know they want to see that money turn into something right okay and how long did that sort of you know fundraising process take from literally so you know creating the pitch deck and getting advisors and you know all that stuff to actually having the money in the bank like what was the to overall timeline and what was the breakdown like what what areas took longer than you probably expected and which areas was like quick quick um it took um Let's see, longer to make our deck than I thought it should have. I think that's because we were like um, learning a lot about deck design while we were doing it. And I'm still not sure I'm an expert there, but um, I think that took a while. Um, you know, I think one thing we should have done is focus on like getting just like a deck template and that would have saved us more time instead of like going back to an artist every single time we wanted to change a page. That was like kind of a waste of time and it was like sort of unnecessary. Um, I think, um, on fundraising, it, 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 I guess it, it, finding investors didn't take so long, but like I've spent the better part of my career, like networking. Mm -hmm. So I already had these like types of relationships where if I didn't know the investor, I knew somebody who knew the investor and they could make the introduction. I think, I think had I just been starting off fresh, that would have probably been by far the longest. Okay. 
Uh, like, how, how long would you say that whole process then? Like, six months, three months, 12 months from start to finish? Um, about four months um, from start to finish. And the reason it took longer, I think, than it should have is as we were in the middle, or like about to close, as we were going through the legal process, um, everybody got COVID. I had COVID. My co-founder had COVID. Our investor had COVID. Our lawyer had COVID. Um, I think their lawyer, my our investor's lawyer had COVID. Literally everybody got COVID. And so everything just kind of stopped and we were all just sick for a while. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Okay. And how many in-person meetings, if any, did you have? Because remember at the start when we were talking about Roma Games, you said you had like a quick 20-minute call with the investor. So that was obviously a virtual meeting. But how many physical meetings did you have? Uh, we didn't have any. Um, okay. It was all virtual, yeah. Because our, our investor is based in Singapore um, and Barcelona. Okay. So, yeah, we didn't have any in person. Did they ever push for physical or was they just happy with virtual meetings? Um, no, they were happy with virtual. I think I think because of like the the COVID stuff that was going on, um, virtual was, was a bit better. I think had we tried this um you know three years ago it would have had to have been probably in person yeah okay um like what was that like you know pitching virtually because what's the call that initial you know pitch call was that literally just like a phone call or was that like a call where you could share your screen um in most cases um it was a phone call i'm sorry it was a it was a a a video call where I would be sharing my screen. Uh, and then it's just like, you know, like you practice in like in school with like a pitch, right? It's like, okay, here's our deck. And then you, you practiced and you know, your lines, you, I did everything, almost everything with my, um, with my co-founder. So he knew his lines and then you just go through the slides and you, you, you talk about, you know, your, your vision. Um, it's very, there's a very clear, uh, formula for it and they've heard the formula and they know what to expect and they want to hear where did you come from um you know why do you want to what's the problem you're trying to solve in games why do you want to solve this problem uh like what's the marketing how are you going to solve this problem and how much money do you need and then you answer questions and it's like it's like such a a, a set process that um uh you know they've heard it in fact, it was only in the case of play where they deliberately asked us like not to go through the deck that way. They're like, okay, I've seen the deck. I know what to expect. Let's just talk about like in detail, like here's all my questions that I have for you. Like here, let's make this more interesting. Um, so you don't have to do the same song and dance. Some investors want the song and dance. Others, others don't. Um, I don't really have a preference one way or the other, but you have to know your pitch and you have to like have practiced it. And for the, for the love of all things holy, like make sure you like, you know, have shared the deck with somebody in advance and they can like, you know, like who knows what they're talking about and can give you advice on whether or not it's a good deck or, or, or if you need to rework it. And in our case, we definitely had to rework our deck. We made a bunch of mistakes. Um, yeah. So did you rework it before you got the, you know, the investment or, I mean, like before you got that particular meeting or was it like during that sort of process? Did you share it with like a friend or someone? Um, we, um, yeah, I mean, we were constantly like working on and tweaking the deck. Um, 
we sent it out after we made the first version and then um we got some feedback and then made a bunch of changes um then we um uh did a few uh, a, a few calls um got some feedback made some more changes um you know deleted some information added like for instance we, we weren't really sure if we wanted to work on nfts so like we put a like a little thing in there like we might do nfts and we got some immediate feedback that was like it, unless you're actually doing nfts and like you're really into it don't put it into your deck because it'll just confuse people so we, we took that out um so uh, be concise with what you want to do yes precisely okay and what advice would you give to people looking to raise money for their company? Um, I, I guess um, it really depends. Like, um, firstly, um, I think it's important to know what you want to build and why. Make sure you have the right team to do it. This is like feedback that a lot of people have. Like, like a lot of people will... Um, um, put together a team and it's like missing a key component. So like they won't have an engineer or it's like a bunch of business people who don't have an artist or an engineer or um, it's an engineer and an artist, but they don't have a business person. Like you kind of need like all of the pieces um, to be a little bit more palatable. Most like in general, unless you already have a game that's kind of working, um, most studio, most investors are investing in the team and not in the, um, and not in the game itself, right? Like you'll you'll be convinced that your game idea is a great idea, and it might be a great idea, but um, they know pretty well that most of like the games that you start with are not the games that end up making your studio money. Um, for instance, we pitched a game that's like you know, uh, Animal Crossing, and we worked on that for a few months and then killed it because it was clearly not working. Um, uh, and as much as we believed in it, like they knew that that was probably going to happen, and they were right. Um, so, so I think a big thing is like, you have to have like the right, uh, DNA for your, your, your studio, make sure you check all the boxes, um, when it comes to it. Okay. And so you, I think you said you raised one and a half million dollars for Roma games. What does that allow you to do? And what's the sort of, you know, predicted burn rate or sort of time frame that you've got that for? Sure. Um, so we raised uh, actually just like 1.1 uh, 1. Uh, million. Um, and what that allows us to do uh, is a bit of user acquisition um, and then essentially work for two years on figuring out what project we should launch. Um, so that gets us a few engineers, um, uh, a few artists, and uh, a game designer, and then the founding team. Um, uh, we don't have an office. Uh, we don't have like a lot of perks um because we're a pretty small scrappy startup uh, but we can run uh user acquisition tests if we need to like test like a game idea or an art style or something and uh and then test the actual game to get some good kpis pay for marketing etc um so overall i would say uh that gives us about a good year uh, probably about a year and a half um of developing out different game ideas uh before we need to raise money again Okay. And do you have plans of raising money or is it a matter of if you need to? Uh, I think at this point we're, we're definitely looking to raise again. I think we, we've decided that the project that we're working on now is probably going to be somewhat expensive. We're going to need a lot more art and some other things. 
Um, so um, I think we are reasonably certain that we're going to be uh, raising again, but we have a little bit of time before that actually happens. Um, so we can work on our project a bit more. Um, and if it actually takes off without raising, I think we'll be, you know, equally happy. Um, but um, in that case, we'll have to run a little bit more scrappy. If we do run, raise money, then we can start to do like really cool stuff that we'd like, you know, add all the features, think really big, move really fast, hire a bunch of awesome people. Um, you know, it's, um, it kind of just depends on, on where, where the cards, uh, where the cards fall, if that's the phrase. Um, uh, when it comes to like what we actually end up doing. Um, I, I wouldn't say I necessarily have like a big preference other than I really want this to succeed. Okay. And why did you choose to raise funds versus bootstrapping it? Um, in order to get the talent that we needed, um, I knew that we were going to need, uh, to raise a bit of money. Like the CTO needed a, a, a good salary. The, um, and the other two folks that came on board, like, you know, one of them just had a baby and, and the other one, um, uh, although he didn't, you know, he needed, uh, he needed to be making some money, uh, so that he could pay his, his rent. I think, um, we also wanted to make sure that we could hire, you know, good, uh, um, other other good talent and run user acquisition and not have to worry about counting every penny. Like I want to be able to run some tests and have them fail and that, you know, like, and not really, really worry about, uh, about breaking the bank every time I do that. You know, I want to make sure that I can acquire, um, get it like a good MacBook for, for all the employees if they like need that to work on instead of, you know, um, instead of skimping on that kind of stuff that's just going to hold them back. Yeah, of course. And what did you have before you raised the fund? Because, you know, some companies, they've got a product and they've launched it and it's not quite going well. Yeah, some people, they literally just have an idea. Like what was, you know, ready and what did you show to the investor? And they was like, yeah, we want to invest in this startup and we want to invest in you guys. What, do, what did it bring to the table outside of obviously experience? We had a concept and a bunch of market research um, and a really, really rough prototype that um, kind of illustrated the, the idea. Um, and that's that's about all we had. Um, we didn't have any metrics, though. So. Okay. I think if we had metrics, it would have probably made things a lot easier. Okay. And that rough prototype, did, that cr did you create that yourselves or did you hire some developer just to get some rough prototype? working just for the investors how did that come about um we um uh, our cto built it uh with our our chief product so uh yeah we, we built that all in-house okay and so when will Roma games launch its first game and do you have any details for your project or at least your predicted first game because you said you're running a bunch of you know experiments right now and you know you just sort of just experimenting with what you know works and what doesn't yeah um so we did actually launch a game um previously um but we just like killed it and and i think we took it out of the app store um so technically we already launched it it was a, a, a 2d animal crossing knockoff um our next game we're anticipating we will launch um 
probably in, let me think. I would look for some stuff in December. We're going to try and do like a, maybe a, a closed beta. Um, and then January, February, we'll move towards maybe an open beta. And then springtime, we'll probably have something that's on the App Store. Okay, so not long at all then for it to come out. What's the name of that Animal Crossing sort of game that you took off? Um, it was called uh, Shopcraft. Shopcraft, did you say? Yes. Shopcraft. Okay, I'm going to have a quick Google after our podcast. So how has working at companies like the Behemoth Disney the advertising company Charboost, you know, Calibre, you know, form your approach at Roma Games. Because, you know, you're a veteran in, effectively, in the gaming industry. You've been to loads of different companies, seen all sorts of stuff. Because when you started, was that, what, 010 or 11, or maybe even before that, it was in the early days of the mobile gaming industry. So you've seen that grow from a little thing to the thing now. So, like, how does that form your approach, you know, going into Roma games? What advice would you give as a result of all this experience? Um, let's see. Um, I think I think there's, like, a bunch of different things that, that were um, helpful. Um, I think learning how to manage a team was an extremely valuable experience from the earlier ones, and that's something that like kind of informed me. I think I learned about um, how to do data-driven um, like marketing tests, and that was that's been a big guidepost for me. I, I think understanding the different systems that work in a game, um, you know, what what are the core loops, the meta. Um, how can you monetize them? Um, what are the key features you need to do, use when you're, you're you're creating an MVP? You know, um, that's all stuff that that Colibri I think taught me. Um, I think understanding how to speak to artists and how to handle um, you know um, IP holders and 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 talk talk up to people to manage up. Um, is something that I learned while I was mostly at uh, Disney and maybe a bit at Charpoos, where like you have a boss and, and or somebody you're trying to pitch to, um, and the pitching skill that I, I I had to do a lot of while I was at Charpoos, like that is super super helpful. Like understanding how to like get up in front of people you have never met who um, don't know you and and like very quickly explain a concept to them and get them to like that concept or at least like you. Um, that's like such an, like a valuable experience that I think anybody who is looking to succeed in, in any sort of business, like learning how to do a bit of sales is like really, really helpful. Um, being able to sound confident when you're explaining something and, um, convince someone that they should buy whatever that thing is, buy into your idea, buy into you, that sort of stuff, I think really, really pushes somebody along when it comes to the entrepreneurial experience, when it comes to the management experience. Um, so, you know, if you want to raise money, yeah, sure. You gotta, you gotta sound like you're, um, you know, what you're doing and that you're, you have a great idea, but also, um, when you're talking to your employees, like you have to make sure, like, I, I'm going to sell this idea. I need them to be on board with it. And let's make sure that we can figure out the objections in advance. 
Um, I think that's as a founder, as a CEO on, on like the business side, like for me, that of course is incredibly important. Um, and then just familiarizing yourself with any and all of like the various tech things, you know, knowing what might be some problems on the back end or um, things that people are dealing with unity or their art uh, pipelines. Like that's all stuff that you kind of like um, you start to absorb while you're at some of these other, these other studios. Okay. Um, and, and I do have to apologize. I think I have to go in about eight minutes. I'm really sorry. That's not a problem. That was literally the last question that I had on my list. So what I was going to say, you know, before we wrap up, like, is there anything else you want to, you know, tell everyone about Realm again? Because there isn't that much information. So the questions that I've asked, it was very, it was limited based on the limited knowledge I, you know, had about it. Because, you know, obviously there's not really any games out right now for it. I don't think there's any footage or any artwork that you've put out there or that, that I could find. So do you want to talk more about Roma games before we wrap up? Just like give some more information. Yeah. Um, so Roma games is, you know, as you know, it's a brand new studio set up in um, Berlin. Um, our objective is to make genre defining games. So we really want to make games that are like hybrids of new genres, defining them, um, innovating the, the mechanics, um, the worlds they're in the um um like all of the the attributes of it we want to challenge all of the preconceived notions you have about those genres and what it means um for that genre um and uh, we are currently hiring so if you go to our website you can see um we're currently hiring uh actually a 3d artist um but uh we have new job listings all the time um for new positions as we're expanding which is great um, so please check us out at roamergames.com. Um, that is R-O-A-M-E-R games.com. Um, and overall, I think you're going to see some pretty awesome stuff coming out of our little studio um, over the next few months um, that we're really excited to share with everyone. Um, likewise, if you get to our careers page and you don't see something listed um, that is your specialty, always feel free to submit an open application. Um, we take those very seriously and, and look at every single one. Um, and when the time is right, uh, we'd love to have folks come out and join us. Um, but other than that, I mean, I think that's us in a nutshell. Um, I want to I wanna thank you so much for having me on and uh, letting me tell a little bit about my story. No problem, Nate. I mean, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And we'll, what I'd love to do is when you do launch a game hopefully in the, in the next few months or so have you on again you know talk about how things have changed obviously about you know the game that you've launched and just yet yeah, just get people hearing about how you know things have progressed in you know over the, over those few months and you know the lesson that you've learned from that because i feel like the lessons you will learn in a few months you know leading up to a launch of a game in your own startup is going to be immense compared to let's say two years at an already established company where they've already got processes you know that keep the wheels turning oh absolutely um if you're uh, if you'll have me on I'd, I'd love to be there yeah that'd be great so thank you nate i really appreciate it or like i said i'll get all the links including roma game including whatever it is all the links off you that you feel are relevant i'll put them in the description and feel free to check them out guys if you like the podcast give it a five star rating and i'll see everyone soon and i'll see you soon nate take care
Take care. Thank you so much. Bye.